G'day and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Fraser. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Alexander Levitov about his article, Guidelines for the Appropriate Use of Bedside General and Cardiac Ultrasonography in the Evaluation of Critically Ill Patients, Part 2, Cardiac Ultrasonography. Dr. Levitov is a professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and the Director of Ultrasound Training at the Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, well, I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Alex, bedside echo has become very popular in recent years. Um, Why do you think that is? What does it add over and above our current diagnostic strategies? Well, it's actually two questions kind of wrapped in one. One is why did it become popular in the recent time? The other one is what does it add to the diagnostic accuracy? I will start from the second question, actually, and that explains why in the recent years bedside ultrasonography became so popular. I've been in the field since early 80s, actually late 70s. And it was clear from the very beginning that diagnostic ultrasound adds an enormous amount to an ability to make diagnosis clinically. Humans at large are uh, visual animals. We don't smell well and we don't touch real well. So 90% of the information that we obtain comes from the eyes. So uh, the same goes for diagnostic acumen. Most of us have a little bit hard time listening and palpating and seeing organs in real time and seeing the heart pumping and being able to see what left ventricular function is adds enormously to an ability to to understand what's going on with the patient. It also adds an element of bedside physiology lab where you can obtain images before and after intervention, allowing to see what was the impact of the intervention on patient in real time. None of that can be done clinically. And in the olden times, the swan times, it was clearly demonstrated in a that patients' uh, volume status, for instance, cannot be assessed clinically or radiologically uh, with the degree of accuracy necessary for therapy. Why did the field explode in the recent years? Well, it has to do with the ever-improving and expanding technology. At the beginning, the machines were extremely bulky. They were the size of refrigerators. They couldn't move to patient bedside and could be used only in the diagnostic department. And the quality was such that it required an enormous amount of expertise to even understand what you're looking for. As the technology improved, machines became smaller, more accurate, and the images became easily interpretable. Uh, with the knowledge of anatomy and some knowledge of phonology, it starts attracting more and more people who, who, who immediately understood the value of uh, looking inside of the body. And it's probably going to continue as the ultrasound system become more and more user-friendly and the data acquired becomes much easier to interpret. 
if you look at some of the old images, you will immediately recognize how difficult it was at one time and why it required an enormous amount of expertise. And still, there was a considerable operator-derived differences. They diminish with the improving technology. Alex, do we have a sense for how many people are using bedside ultrasonography in the intensive care unit at this point in time? Well, it depends for what. So I would suspect that the bulk of people will use bedside ultrasound for, uh, let's say, procedural guidance. Um, my suspicion is that would be very close to 100%. I think it's almost unconscionable if you have an ultrasound available not to use it to guide procedures. It just adds such a layer of safety. For a cardiac assessment, I'll have to guess. It's very geography-dependent. Uh, Europeans use it frequently mostly because European critical care is, for the most part, anesthesia-derived, and they're familiar with equipment, both uh, trans-chest and TE. In the United States of America, I would suspect anywhere from maybe 30 to maybe 60%, depending on geography, where the medical center is. Australia, I know, in reality, has a very robust system. I was unfortunately unable to come to the meeting in Adelaide, but uh, it appears that probably the majority of intensivists would use ultrasound, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think you're probably right there too, Alex. It's becoming almost ubiquitous in some form in, in Australia and, and seemingly throughout the world. And to that end, the objective of the papers seems to be to establish some guidelines for the use of ECHO, where it's appropriate and where it's not. What was the reasons for doing that? Why was it important to do that? Well, I think guidelines concentrate, first of all, they define the field of uh, bedside ultrasonography. So you would know what is an acceptable standard if you're a novice you can defer to the guidelines as far as guiding you or what you should be doing in the icu uh, once you get ultrasound equipment second of all once you know where most people use ultrasound it will invite creating more data which would in turn provide higher quality information and kind of uh, form an ever-increasing uh, merry-go-round where more data creates more information, guidelines become more and more precise, and training becomes much better defined of how to obtain that data. So I think the main purpose of guidelines is to concentrate the reader on what is acceptable uh, practice of ultrasonography in the ICU or the most common practice, I mean. Alex, how did you go about constructing the guidelines? You used the GRADE and the RAND criteria in establishing the guidelines. Some of our listeners won't be familiar with them. Would you mind explaining how that operates? So RAND system is derived from uh, an old Delphi system, which is the system to uh, 
find consensus. It has been used by the military to find operational consensus for some time. So basically the group of uh, experts will uh, grade recommendations uh, on, on a running scale from one to six from negative to positive, depending on the strength, and separately grade the uh, the available information as the higher or poor quality. The nitty-gritty of the system, I'd probably defer to Dr. Edelberry, who uh, did it in both part one and part two, and without his contribution, neither part of the guidelines would be possible. He is an expert in the field, and he uh, contributed enormously to the scientific method of consensus uh, gathering for those guidelines. Alex, overall, there were no recommendations that were given a level of evidence of A, which was the highest, as I understand it, and most, in fact, were given a C. Does this highlight to you the lack of research as it currently stands in uh, particularly in critically ill patients? Yeah, well, one of the reasons why the guidelines came about is there's a bit of a cottage industry of people doing at bedside this or the other things without particular guidance of how to do them and how to go about it. So that that's one of the strong reasons for the creation of guidelines that result in kind of a dispersed effort. There is no concise information gathering. So uh, one of the reasons I think the guidelines will help, they define the field and allow people then to obtain the precise information that increases the quality of, of research as a result, quality of publications, and so on. It's also inherited in all diagnostic imaging modality is inability or difficulty with obtaining the double-blinded or placebo study. It's pretty difficult to imagine a mock diagnostic intervention. That excludes a lot of A-grade, which are basically uh, defined by double-blinded multicenter placebo-controlled studies. Some of that will, the data will improve, but it might never reach the degree of precision in obtaining information that, let's say, interventional study would. It's easy to double-blind whether you give people albumin or crystalloids, but it's very difficult to double-blind yourself to an information that you obtain uh, by diagnostic modality. Alex, um, 24 of the recommendations were given as strong, and I thought that was one of the more intriguing components of the recommendations, given what we've just talked about in terms of the strength of the evidence. How is it that so many of the guidelines actually ended up being given a strong rating? Well, that's why I was talking about either black or a white magic in a process. So those are consensus there was a scale in each of the independent people that contributed to the guidelines, and they were from a great deal of spectrum, both by training, geography, and so forth, will grade the recommendations on strength. And the strength was derived purely numerically. Uh, one possibility of why 
there are so many strong recommendations with the degree of uh, weakness in the data is because a lot of people at bedside become dependent on ultrasonography and they feel strongly that it should be advisable to use it. The value is so clinical that people end up feeling strongly about it. It's a little bit like grading whether one should or should not use, uh, let's say, um, ophthalmoscope to look in the eyes for uh, papillary edema, let's say, or to use stethoscope to listen for heart murmurs. Some of that is just a normal clinical practice that results in skewing recommendations towards strong. So in, rather than the evidence forming the basis, it's more the practical application and the, the difficulty in obtaining that important information in any other way, is that right? Yeah, I think it's a clinical practice, as I said again. To create a double-blinded placebo data with a clinical tool would be an interesting trick. So to some degree, the data will always lag behind. Uh, again, I think that creation of guidelines will concentrate and allow to obtain more data, but some of that might end up continue to be clinical. There is one thing that ultrasound has over it, and if you're old enough, you probably re remember the time of indiscriminate uh, use of PA catheters, one against catheter. I think there is one mistake that we cannot make is to produce harm by ultrasound as a diagnostic tool. In fact, what data we have seems to indicate strongly that the safety is increased. By, by itself, ultrasound is the minimally invasive and minimal risk intervention for the patient. So there is a degree of safety with the sonography that doesn't exist with the more invasive uh, attempts to make a diagnosis. So that is already one big advantage to where what you do is unlikely to harm the patient. And we, the critical care certainly has a checkered history in regards to that. Alex, there were obviously plenty of recommendations in the document and our listeners will inevitably go and read that for themselves, but what were the highlights for you personally? Well, uh, just like you noticed, I was very pleasantly surprised to the strength of recommendations. You don't know. We live in a very uh, defined niches or caves, defined geographically and so on. So you kind of don't have an idea of what other people do for the most part. And I was surprised that so many experts agreed strongly on the, what the practice of critical care ultrasonography should be. It appears that it surprised you as well. So uh, that was one of the biggest surprises for me. Uh, it's validated to some degree what I'm doing in my world. And by the way, I just want to mention that we have now 147 medical students for four years using ultrasound as a clinical tool, shaming the attending physicians into using it. 
So we live in the environment in our medical school that is very concentrated on ultrasonography as a tool of medical education. So I wasn't quite sure what's going on outside of that little environment. Uh, and I was very pleasantly surprised that most of the things that we think of doing has been validated by such a broad spectrum of practitioners. Alex, I thought it was very interesting that for each of the recommendations that the paper contained, you suggested a level of experience that the criterion should be applied to. For example, some of them were for all levels of experience and others were just for experienced practitioners. How was this decision made and why was it made? As I previously mentioned, ultrasound is by nature an extremely safe procedure. Uh, there is very little damage that can be done by the diagnostic ultrasound. Uh, where the damage can be done is through misinterpretation of the images. Uh, you might confuse pleural effusion and pericardial effusion and attempt to do a pericardiosynthesis on a pleural effusion. Inherently, the images obtained are easy or difficult to interpret, depending on the diagnosis. The example for that would be it's extremely easy to see a pericardial effusion, and anybody can see it uh, if they understand anatomy. On the other hand, it's very difficult to diagnose pericardial tamponade. Uh, requires considerably more expertise. Therefore, all of the recommendations were then changed or, or graded depending on training, depending on how easy or how difficult it would be to arrive to a correct diagnostic decision. Having said that, what constitutes an expert is somewhat an obscure thing. The training has been defined a couple of years ago by Paul Mayo and co-authors in the article in Chest. However, expertise comes with clinical experience rather than numerical criteria of how many of the particular image you have obtained. And it will continue to be a difficult definition. It, to a great degree, requires seeing a lot of clinical pathology and somewhat difficult to say what it is. Ideally, I believe there be three levels of expertise. The one is ability to interpret images that are easily interpreted, which is a base interpretable, which is a basic level. An expert level would be basically can properly interpret just about everything that can be obtained. And there's certainly an intermediate expertise level, but it's so difficult to further identify or to have a criteria of what that is that uh, we ended up not having to use that level of intermediate expertise. Alex, I must admit I was expecting to see something about that recommendation in the guidelines and I was surprised to find that it wasn't there. Is um, That must have generated quite a, a deal of discussion amongst the panel. Yeah, I was favouring uh, quite honestly to have an intermediate level of expertise. 
But again, intermediate by definition is it's a liquid definition. I would suspect that basic level of expertise can probably be obtained within a week or two by most practitioners if they are trained systematically. The expert is easy to define as well. It's the person who, uh, under normal circumstances, will correctly interpret a great majority of images. And then intermediate becomes very difficult to define. So I'm glad we we dropped an intermediate level. Though it probably will add some because there are a lot of physicians in training that can be somewhere there and being able to interpret a greater amount of images correctly uh, than the basic level of expertise, but not enough to be called expert. But again, that substantially would be almost impossible to define. Alex, congratulations on the publication of these guidelines. They make an enormous difference to those of us who are still beginning our journey with ultrasound, and thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. (laughs) This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash eyecriticalcare for more information. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Todd Fraser, MD, is an intensive care and retrieval medicine physician from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. He is a staff specialist at Nusa Hospital and is the founder of Osler Technology, a clinical certification and training system. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.